welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast. I am your host, Cody McBroom, the CEO of Tailored Coaching Method, a world-renowned online coaching company. This podcast is built to help you create a life by design. That's what the Tailored Life is. It's choosing to blaze your own path, make your own decisions, and create a life you desire. So in this podcast, you're going to learn ways to optimize your body, optimize your mind, optimize your relationships and optimize your business and career this is the podcast for personal development junkies and people who can't stop growing because they strive for more we are also going to bring on experts in every single field to teach you their own expertise so you're not only learning from me four days a week but I'm bringing other professionals in to teach you their principles too so if you love personal development and you constantly want to strive for more in life this is the podcast for you. Make sure you hit subscribe, send this to a friend that needs it, and keep listening to improve your life all around. And without any further ado, let's get into the Tailored Life Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Andy Galpin, who is a professor at Fullerton University. He is a PhD in human bioenergetics and muscle physiology. He is also the author of Unplugged, which is a book about getting away from technology in today's society. Um, but on top of that, he is a really, really, really smart individual who is very well known. He's been on many different podcast publications, such as Joe Rogan and some some at that level. Um, he's written so many different research studies, so many different articles. He's been on so many different podcasts. His YouTube is phenomenal. The guy is unbelievably smart and he's unbelievably experienced working with pro athletes mma fighters so many different freakish athletes uh it's really really impressive what he knows what he researches and what he coaches who he coaches how he coaches uh so today we get to dive into muscle fiber typing because that is his main thing that he has studied and researched over the years he's diving into a lot of different uh research areas now uh which we didn't get to jump into unfortunately because we just couldn't stop talking about muscle fibers because that's what he really, he, he's been really well known for because he was one of the first guys to come out and start really discovering new evidence and new science about muscle fibers. And there's so much misinformation when it comes to muscle fiber types, how to train for muscle fiber types, genetics, epigenetics, um, all across the board. So today we're going to dive into muscle fibers specifically. You're going to learn a ton about this. This is one that is very, very science-based. So I highly recommend you grab a notepad, grab a pen, um, and take some notes. And then afterwards, look at those notes and then go to his YouTube, go to Google even, and just research these topics that we discuss if you need to dive a little bit deeper because it is very science-based. Um, but we, he breaks it down in a simple, practical way. So you leave with some applicable takeaways to implement into your training literally today. So um, I'm really excited about this one, guys. This is one I've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, if you are not yet subscribed on both iTunes and YouTube, make sure you do that for me uh, right now. You can find both of those in the link of this podcast, wherever you are listening to it. And we also have a clips channel called the Tailored Life Podcast Clips, where you can find small segments of each podcast that we record. And it's just like bite-sized nuggets that you can grab and go for five, 10 minutes to get knowledge on a specific topic. So uh, if you like this podcast, make sure you share it with a friend, tag me if you do so on social media. I'd love to thank you for, for listening, for watching and share it on my story as well, as well as Dr. Andy Galpin, both of which handles for Instagram you can find in the show notes. And without any further ado, let's talk to the one and only Dr. Andy Galpin. All right. So before we get into kind of talking about your research and everything and, and um, some of the specific topics, I'd love to get a kind of your story in a nutshell. I know like uh, we only have an hour of time, so I don't expect the whole story, but you have an interesting background um, as I was digging into it. Just, I mean, one coming from Washington, uh, there's not a lot of 
researchers or people doing what you're doing that started here. Um, so I'd love to just kind of hear your story, how you got into strength and conditioning, what led you to the field you're in, and then how you ended up working with the type of people you, you work with now and, and being the author you are and all that. Sure. I mean, I grew up in Southwest Washington, not too far. And we were talking before the show. Actually, I love the city that you're in. You're a place to move is it's amazing. So I would actually live there before I would go back to my hometown, Rochester. Um, so that whole area is great. So, I mean, I grew up there and, and like everyone that I grew up with and probably everyone you grew up with, Cody, uh, everyone played football, baseball, basketball, like everyone played everything. So I, I did all the same. And I went to college in Western Oregon at a small school called Winfield. Uh, so I played football there and got a degree in exercise science. I started lifting weights probably when I was you know, I don't know, my teens, 13 or something like that. Uh, just because that was, that was part of the culture, mostly for football. Um, and so we were very fortunate that our head football coach really valued those things. And, and so I had the classic plastic or the classic like cement weights, you know, if you will, and like the barbell in the, in the garage kind of thing. Uh, so I just started off with very basic stuff like that. Got into high school and we had a gym, of course, and was able to learn a squat and to bench and, and all those things. Um, so then through college football, we didn't have a strength and conditioning coach. And so actually Doug Larson from Barbell Shrugged and he and I basically started to learn all these things ourselves. So we taught ourselves how to clean and jerk and how to snatch. And before very long, we were basically programming for the entire football team as probably juniors, or maybe even sophomores. Um, so we sort of cut our chops that way. Um, so I got my degree and then I, I went around a little bit. I did an internship at Athlete Performance in Arizona, which back then it was the first and only facility that trained professional athletes. So it's nutrition and Cairo and PT and strength conditioning sort of all in one shop. So you know, pretty quickly there I was training. There was you know, 250 professional athletes in one building. And I'm, you know, I was working with guys that were, uh, some of them are Hall of Famers already and some of them you know, were minor leaguers at the time, but eventually, or, you know, draft players that hadn't got drafted and eventually turned out to be Hall of Famers in baseball and football. Um, so I did that for a while, went uh, back and got my master's degree at the University of Memphis in human movement sciences, if you will. Couldn't play football anymore, you know, just because I wasn't good enough, right? Like, uh, so then I started competing in weightlifting. Um, uh, got into that, spent some time there, and then got into the combat sports. So started competing in jiu-jitsu and uh, training in MMA and, and those things. Got my PhD in what's called human bioenergetics, and the same thing the whole the whole way. I'm I'm training in MMA. I'm I'm working with a lot of actually probably I had about ten kind of close training partners uh, for my four years of my PhD, four and a half, and of the ten, probably seven or eight made it to the UFC or in some of the bigger promotions and fans. So um, I had some pretty good experience working with those folks there and then finished that up and got my job out here in California in 2011. And just immediately started working with, continue to work with fighters and, and the, the, the fight culture being so large out here that, that sort of led into, you know, smaller level combat sport athletes, competitive boxers, uh, competitive like Olympic wrestlers and things like that. And then you know, it just takes off from there. And so now I find myself working with the highest paid player in Major League Baseball and, you know, world champions in multiple sports uh, across domains. So that's the nutshell of how I got from there to here. 
at what point did uh, muscle fibers become that's and that's originally how I got introduced to you that in, in your book where I think one of those two things were the first that came to me but that was it, it was really cool digging through all that with you because I remember getting into lifting and, and like most people um, except obviously you because I didn't go play college football but a lot there's a lot of people like me that just did muscle mag bro bodybuilding right and there was a there was like a muscle fiber specific training thing that was like really cool and it was exciting when I first learned about it because I knew nothing and so everything was like so novel when it when it came out so when you started coming out with all this research it was actually really cool for me to kind of go back and and see what was applicable and what was just downright stupid and didn't make any sense and was just basically people's random random anecdote but I'd love to hear like how you got into that like why did you even start going down that rabbit hole and start doing more and more research there well probably because I was really fast <laughs> to, to be totally honest with you um so that always fascinated me uh there the, I was never very big, so just getting, you know, like adding muscle mass and hypertrophy. Bodybuilding honestly never interested me. I, I never did the that type of stuff. I was always like, man, I want to be a better athlete. Um, that was more fascinating. I, I never thought slow was interesting, <laughs> ever. So I was just fascinated, like fast drivers to some stuff, like I want to be more athletic. And I was, especially once I got to the, after college, like I knew it was just light years away talent-wise for being able to play like in the NFL. That was never like a a re realistic thought after I was you know, 12 or whatever. Um, but I started training these folks and I'm like, man, they're not that much bigger than I am. They're not much more athletic than I am, but some of them are just like digits faster than me. And so fascination uh, expanded there. Cause I'm just like, why is it? Some people are just so much faster. You know, like everyone thinks they run a four, four, 40 in high school. And then you get like a real timer and that four, four is like a four, nine real fast. And you see these guys that actually run four fours and the guys that actually run four twos and you're just like, oh my, you just can't fathom how much faster they are than anything you've ever seen. And whatever you think you've seen, like it's, it's still not even close to fast. Um, so that peaked and then, you know, competing in weightlifting, having a lot more success than a lot of my contemporaries, despite the fact that they were absolutely stronger than me. Um, and so if you looked at like, my snatch and my clean jerk and relative to my deadlift and relative to my squat, you're like, you know, we would always joke that if I was trying to do like a one rep max front squat, you know, if I, if I missed it and dropped the weight, I would just clean it, put it back on the rack and I try to front squat it again. <laughs> I was just like, not that far from, like, it's not that facetious actually. It's pretty close. Um, so my advantage, it was very obvious to me that my advantage in performance was shifted more towards the speed end of the spectrum rather than the force end of the spectrum. I felt like so many people that I was with, I, I felt like that was rare. So I felt special, right? Because it was like, man, I'm, I'm over here when almost everyone's over there at the middle of desk. And so, um, you know, and then at school, like just learning about fibers and contractions and stuff, that just, you know, it works together. Like you tend to be more interested in the things that you're good at. And so there was a natural inclination there. And then as I, you know, one of the reasons I chose the program that I went to for my master's was because they were doing biopsies and they were doing biopsies of healthy thing and uh, healthy and, and athletes. And they were doing studies like, let's take a biopsy and we'll have you do two, 10 sets of one at hundred percent of your max squat. So you do one at max, take a longer break as you need to do 10 of those. And you do that every day for two weeks. And then we're going to take a biopsy at the end. And I'm like, that's the dopest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, I don't even know anything about what that is so dope. Like these are real training questions. Like in that case, like almost an exaggerated training question, but still really, really interesting. 
because uh, prior to that, like my whole entire schooling was public health. And if it was related to muscle, it was really disease prevention or something. And, and I never seen people really doing the cellular aspect of high performance stuff. So I'm like, I'm down. I'm like, muscle's great. I can tell with everything else. Let's learn more. And then choosing, choosing my PhD program was a similar extension in the fact that like I wanted to find somebody who really was doing muscle at the cellular level at the highest function possible. So they weren't doing sport performance really. But my thought was I, I have a pretty good grip of strength conditioning and performance. And if I can get a better understanding of the cellular side, then, then I'm going to have a, a unique perspective. And so I spent you know, the years doing that. And then when I got out, um, and this was my pitch to every program that I interviewed with them, like no one has, people have a better understanding of the cellular side, people have a better understanding of the coaching side, but no one understands both to the level that, that I do. And so this is a unique area that I can explore. Uh, and so Kelsey Fullerton was like, let's do it. And I told him I'm going to do biopsies on athletes. I'm going to look at single fiber characteristics. Uh, and this is what I'm going to make a career of. And they were like, let's do it. So that that's how I got started. And then you know, when you do that, you start to spend time uh, questioning what you've been taught in school and looking and saying, okay, we've been taught A, B, C, D, whatever that is. Like, where'd that come from? And you look at, okay, the textbook, but where'd that textbook come from? Somebody just wrote that. Okay, well, like, what are they citing? Okay, they decided a paper. You can look at that paper, like, that's not what the paper said, or that's pretty weak. That was in three people. And so now the entire textbook is based on something 25 years ago from three subjects that were dead. Hmm. And then you start to realize what really is known or not known or well understood or not well understood. And so you can kind of reshape your own thoughts and you start to realize that maybe no one has honestly studied this area or maybe they have and you missed it or whatever the case may be. So uh, I, I just wanted to know what we actually know about things like fiber type. And, and with a PhD, uh, you tend to fall deeply into one very specific small area. That's sort of the point of the dissertation is to get extreme level of detail beyond what anyone else has ever done in one very small area. And so that just happened to be one of the areas I was focused on. I'd, I'd love for you to kind of tell us, I mean, I think we should start with an introduction of like what the different fiber types are just for anybody listening so they get kind of context. But then also if you had any speculations going into this, before you started doing study after study? And then if any of those changed, like what were your thoughts and how did those things change? Um, I, I, there was even a point where I was listening to you on, on somebody's podcast and you started talking about fiber types that I actually had never even heard of when I first heard you say it. And, and correct, that might be pulling this out of my ass. I could be completely wrong. But for some reason, I feel like you mentioned something about a tiger or a lion or something <laughs> like that. And you were talking about animal fiber types and that sure. you found them in this type and stuff like yeah. that. So. But that kind of stuff just piqued my interest because I'm like, man, he's go taking this down such a, a deeper route than anybody else. But um, explain to us like what those kinds are, just a brief context, and then kind of any speculations or changes that have come to your mind since you started going down this hole. Yeah, don't let me forget that second part of that question. It's going to take me, uh, I'll, I'll do it as concisely as I can without eliminating error, but uh, don't let me forget about that second piece as I lay the foundation for the first part. So if we look at basic human movement, you can... Think of it as a combination of three basic physiological areas. So number one, there has to be some sort of neurological, your brain has to send a signal through the nerves, some neurological innervation. That tells the muscle fiber to contract. The fiber contracts, that pulls on connective tissue. And the connective tissue is attached on one side to the muscle and attached on the other side to the bone. So when the muscle contracts, the connective tissue gets pulled 
and then the other end of the connective tissue then pulls the bone and your human body moves. So when we look at things like athletic performance, you have combinations of ways that you can move more effectively, more forcefully, uh, faster. So some of it could be neurological, some of it could be connective tissue, some of, it, some of it could be technique or biomechanics. One other aspect of that is the, the muscle fibers themselves. And so this is just one component of a multitude of ways in which we move differently as individual beings. So within the muscle, we see that across each muscle group we have in our own body and from person to person, and as you alluded to, from species to species, the fiber types, as we call them, can differ. And so at the most basic level, you have fast twitch fibers and slow twitch fibers. And a fast twitch fiber, with its name, will contract with more speed. A slow twitch will be slower. Now, it seems fiber type predicts speed much more so than strength. It seems like fiber strength is very heavily dictated simply by fiber size. But speed is, is not the case. And so that seems to be the big distinguishing factor is, is how quickly it can contract. Um, now, that's at the surface level. In reality, it gets much more complicated. And I think one of the things you're referring to is back in the olden days, um, there's been a bunch of different changes in nomenclature for reasons that you don't really care about. Um, but initially, there was, okay, fast-twitch fibers and slow-twitch fibers. And then we started to realize, well, there's actually like a couple of different fast-twitch fibers. And so initially, we called them type 1 for slow-twitch and type 2 for fast-twitch. And then we realized since there's two kind of fast-twitch fibers, we'll call it type 1 for slow-twitch and type 2A and type 2B. Makes sense, because the A and the B type 2 were much closer to each other than they were to the type 1. So they were distinct, but very similar. And then we started to realize that those studies actually had come from murine models, so rats and mice. And when we ran some genetic, genetic analyses, we realized, okay, um, actually the rats in this case have like three fast fiber types. So they have type one, they have type 2A, type 2B, and then they have type 2X. And then when we started to look, look at humans, we realized all these years we thought humans have one, 2A, and 2B, we don't have 2B. And in fact, some of the textbooks that are out there still have 2B, despite the fact we've known since the early 1990s that humans don't even have the genetic ability to code for any kind of type 2B. So humans have 1, 2A, and 2X. Well, the type 2B, even though we're out of order, are extremely fast, and they're far faster than our 2X. And this is why animals like um, a lion or whatever you mentioned earlier, who have lots of these 2X fibers, are so much faster, in orders of magnitude faster than we are. That's one of the many reasons. Um, in fact, basically, we see 2X fibers in most other mammals besides humans. Uh, we see them like in bears hibernate. We've done studies on hibernating bears, pre and post hibernation, changes in fiber types as a response. Uh, but all of them have 2X, or 2B rather, except for us. So we're pretty much stuck with 1, 2A, and 2X. But it gets even more complicated than that because you have individual muscle fibers that we will call a hybrid. And so what this means is within a single cell, you express multiple fiber types. So you could be, a fiber could be you know, half fast twitch and half slow twitch. It could be half 2X and 2A. In fact, we have trihybrids. That, so it's one single cell that is part one, part 2A, part 2X. Developing as a, uh, what we call neonatal, so as a small child or an embryo, um, you have actually a distinct other fiber types, uh, type 2C and some other things like that, that they don't have as an adult. 
So we can be as complicated or as simple. If you want to call them, say, fast twitch or slow twitch, you can do that. If you want to break them down into their individual subtypes, you end up with about seven different fiber types with really one pure slow twitch, one pure fast twitch being 2A, a third pure fast twitch 2X. The problem is um, pure 2X fibers basically do not exist in humans. Um, even though we have a theory there, what you're going to see typically are 2A2X hybrids. Right? And those are heavily associated with disuse and being out of shape, if you will, uh, or injury. The only time you really see an abundance of pure 2X fibers are in the case of, you know, muscle has been denervated for 20 years, spinal cord injury, you know, things like that. So maybe extreme age. But for the most part, pure 2Xs just don't exist. So you really have type 1, type 2A. And then some combination of hybrids, these 1-2A hybrids or these 2A-2X hybrids. And it seems to be, in general, the more fit you are, the less hybrids you have. The general thought at this point is, well, you don't ask muscles to do much. It's not going to differentiate and become specific. It's going to kind of sit in the middle and say, what do you need me to do? You need me to be fast or you need me to have great endurance? Like, what would you like? If you're not telling me anything, I'm just going to sit in the middle. If you then specify what you want to do through your training, we will shift towards that. So you want to do more endurance-based stuff, we will shift our hybrids into becoming pure type ones. If you want to do more fast, which will shift in the opposite direction. So when you look at people who are highly trained, they tend to have very, very, very low amounts of these hybrid fibers in total. Um, they have their ones and their two A's and then very little, you know, 10% or less in between. So folks that are untrained, 70% of the fibers or more might be in this hybrid state. And they have very little pure ones or two ways. So with that recognition, that's the landscape you're looking at. It, it is heavily dependent on your training. It's heavily dependent on your lifestyle. And, and even more interestingly, we found in non-human models, um, quite a bit of response to things like training or to things like nutrition, influencing and changing your fiber type composition. Again, not demonstrated in humans yet, but demonstrated quite often in animal models and even uh, apes and things like that. So that's the basic landscape. And then I don't know where you want to go from there. I, I told you I was going to forget the second part of your question. Yeah, but. just just kind of your speculation. I think a lot of things seem to kind of go in this like pendulum of like, they figure out what fiber types are. They really matter a ton. And then it's like, oh, wait, we don't even have those muscle fibers. We're all kind of hybrid. You just need to train specifically. And it doesn't matter as much in a way. Mm -hmm. Nutrition kind of did the same thing with, you know, I felt like as more research came out, it was kind of, uh, no, calories, just calories, just calories. And now it's kind of swinging back where chrononutrition is coming out. There's better time-restricted eating studies coming out. So maybe nutrient timing does matter more than we realized and so on and so forth. But um, just your what your speculations were getting into this when you first were like, I'm going to study this topic. What did you think you were going to find? And then how did that change if it did? Yeah, I don't necessarily remember what I thought back uh, in the beginning, but I, I certainly have changed my position on a number of things over the years. Um, it is, it seems to be quite established at this point that the fast pitch fibers are very plastic and very responsive. So uh, they, they change quite quickly. The slow twitch, the type one fibers are less so. Um, so it is it's more difficult to change in that direction, although it does happen. Um, other things like strength, um, that's one thing I, I would have argued against a decade ago that a faster fibers is a lot stronger. And it just doesn't really seem to be the case. Um, same thing with size. I would have said faster fibers are much larger. And 
on average they are. Um, but with someone who does say a lot of endurance training, it's not uncommon for us to see that their social fibers are larger than gastric fibers. Uh, so those things I've, I've had to change my position on um, quite a bit. Uh, I mean, just loads of other things, probably fairly unimportant or irrelevant, just like super in the field things that, that don't matter. Um, but those, those are the ones that stand out for sure. Yeah, th those ones. You, you mentioned training in, in basically training specific to develop more muscle fibers in either which way direction. How much of a role does genetics play versus training? And, and if, if, and I guess also like environment, you know, cause we all know those like freakish athletes that it's like, oh, they're just genetically gifted. Was it literal family genetics or was it like what they did from age five to 10 that kind of set the stage for, for the, their muscle fiber dominance and what they would do and, and that whole idea? Yeah, so I would say what you do from age five to 10 probably matters none. Oh. Um, probably has no bearing whatsoever for the most part. So after puberty, uh, by the time you reach sort of post-puberty in those initial stages, you're probably pretty set on um, where your genetic set point is, if you want to call it that. Now, of course, if you're playing video games all day compared to somebody who's working bailing hay all day, as a 10 year old, well, that's going to change just simply because you're exercising right. versus being inactive, but it won't change like your overall functional ability um, to take it to its most absurd analogy. Uh, it didn't matter what Usain Bolt did before he was 10. He, he was going to be the same person basically. Right now, if he had never exercised, he wouldn't be as fast as he is now, but he still would have been faster than us most likely. So if you take Usain Bolt's twin brother, who's now 40 and never did a single day of working out. And I raced that guy. I guarantee that dude would beat him. That's just, that's just what's going to happen, right? Um, but Usain would have smoked his twin brother when he'd be close. And so the answer is that they both matter. There's clearly a genetic inheritance that, that you get. Um, we were, it's funny, we were talking about this yesterday, my wife and I, with my, my one-year-old. And he's just super twitchy. He just explodes all over. My two-and-a-half-year-old's just like molasses all day. <laughs> And I'm like, man, he's just, he's really twitchy. And like, we have videos of the older one compared to this one, it's the same age and stuff. And I'm like, man, he just explodes and he bounces. Uh, so their genetic inheritance is, is critical to everything. Um, but having said that, there's a response for uh, a training. So the genetics will determine your ceiling, if you will, and, and your floor. But how close you are to either one is now determined by your lifestyle. When it comes to training, how specific do you get with these people? And, and I guess more so, like, do you lean on their strengths or do you try to focus on their weaknesses kind of things? Like, this person's not built for this, but they love this sport. Yeah, th there's no answer to that. This is one of the reasons why I hate things like, oh, spit in a cup. And then four, three weeks later, this company will come back and tell you how to work out. It's just it's a terribly stupid idea. Yeah. Right. Um, now, when I work with my athletes, this is a conversation I have with them at the very beginning and their coach, because this is, to me, not a physiology question. This is a coaching strategy question. So um, we, go through, we go through every athlete when I start with them. How do you win and how do you lose? Your strengths or weaknesses, if you will, right? And if, let's say somebody says, okay, like I'm, I'm an extremely fast twitch and terrible endurance, um, then like the coaching strategy is, you tell me what you want, and then I'll, I'll train you to get that. But I, I, I don't get to select 
your tactics in your sport. In other words, do you want to maximize and say like, I'm going to go out there and just beat it and work my speed and then just hope it never gets to the endurance part? Or do you say, okay, I'm going to try to show up this weakness. Um, that, that's, that's not my job. You know, if you ask me, I'll tell you my opinion, but you got to tell me what you want to do. And if you want to say, hey, we're going to show up this weakness, okay, then we'll go at that one. But if it's like, no, we're just going to put your car fine. And the analogy I'll give is um, like with, with one of the current fighters I'm working with, Brian Ortega. So Brian Ortega is this, this world phenom in jiu-jitsu, right? Just unbelievably talented in those areas and, and never really knew how to wrestle. So he's fighting for a UFC world title and had never wrestled in his life, had no concept of wrestling. Now we could have said, hey, your clear weakness in the sport is wrestling. You're terrible at it. Let's spend a year trying to wrestle. And that's fine. Or we could have just said, look, your jiu-jitsu is so good, no one's ever going to try to wrestle you. If they do, they're going to get choked unconscious, which has happened so far in his career. Every person who's ever tried to take him down has been knocked out or choked out. Uh, th that's not a me question. That's that's a tactics question, right? Like, what do you want to do as a coaching strategy? I don't know what you're, you know, which how you want to beat this next opponent. That's that's really up to you. If you tell me, hey, look, we want to, we think eventually we're going to have to learn to wrestle, um, so that we can maybe get to whatever. Then I can say, okay, great. Now I can build you on our program and develop no system to, to get better at that. But that's up to you. That's that's what you say. No, like I'm just gonna. I'm gonna maximize everything I have in, in the other skills, the other strategies, and I'll just leave that hole there. And um, we'll, we'll develop defenses against that hole. Or do you wanna not develop in other areas? Say in this example, you don't wanna get faster, you don't wanna get stronger, um, et cetera, because you wanna spend all that time dedicated to working on wrestling. Okay, but then you have to realize all that wrestling time means I can't improve your, your vertical jump. I can't improve all these other physical deficits that you may or may not have because we can only really maximize our ability to be proven in one area if we're really trying to maximize it. If you want to do a little bit of everything, that's fine, but then don't expect much gains in anything. You'll get a little bit, right? So what do you want to do here? Um, do you want to maximize gains in one area, maximize it in another one, or you want a little bit of all of it? This is a strategy issue, and I can help you achieve any of those goals, but this is up to you. Yeah, well said. Uh, it kind of just switch gears, but just still piggyback off that. Um, despite being somebody who never liked bodybuilding at all, you've put out a lot of good information on hypertrophy and muscle growth. How has this muscle fiber conversation and all the research you've done changed your stance on maximizing hypertrophy or did it at all? Well, I think um, it's, it's changed quite a lot in the last 10 years because we have a lot more information physiologically about what muscle fiber hypertrophy is and what it is not. And we also have a lot of new information on just the training side of it, so the practical applications. So we have um, so many more studies on now, let's compare this many reps per set to that many reps per set. Well, we didn't have a lot of that you know, uh, 15 years ago. This is one of those good examples of what I was talking about earlier, where like it was in the textbooks. Why, why are you questioning the textbooks? And thank God people started looking in the textbook and saying like, well, why is that in the textbook? And we just didn't have answers. It's like, oh crap. Well, just like, cuz, what? Or like one study, in 1972, like the whole textbook for 30 years, of it. let's question that. And it turns out that didn't, didn't hold up to scrutiny. Um, so my position on hypertrophy training has changed a lot. Everything from uh, the type of training. Um, now, the, like one example, I guess, directly answering the question is, you know, there's people have postulated for years that different rep ranges will train different fiber types. And I have gone back and forth on that. And currently, I don't know the answer because 
there's some initial data that suggests that happens and then some that suggests it doesn't happen. And what I can also tell you is from my side of it, having biopsied a lot of people and I say a lot, I mean a lot of muscle fibers, hundreds of thousands. Um, I just don't trust a lot of the scientists in that area, to be frank. Not that they're lying, but because those procedures are so precise, if you don't do them exactly right and your measurement is 10% off, which is super reasonable and hard to get better than 10%. Well, 10% might be the difference between pre and 10 weeks later. So, so now your whole measurement is completely off. And so I have strong skepticism with all of those studies, especially when I'm coming from labs that don't do that a lot, where I look at their methodologies and I'm like, that's not the gold standard. I just don't believe it. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, but this is science. Like you're supposed to be skeptical. So uh, I have a lot of reservations with all those things. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's just so many things I can tell you have changed my mind on regarding hypertrophy. I don't know which area you want to go, the physiology side, the training side, or what? It's hard to decide. I think, you know, you, you talked about different rep ranges, and I've always kind of uh, sided with that as just a best recommendation, not necessarily because of, of a fiber type thing, but just to train in different ranges of intensity. Um, but the other thing that people kind of gravitated towards besides the different rep ranges for different muscle fibers was also certain muscle groups, certain muscle fibers, but a lot of what I've read and heard is, is a lot of muscle groups are so 50-50 or so close to 50-50 that it's like, does it really matter? And maybe okay. you training both, but I'd, I'd be curious of your thought on that. And So this is, it's just interesting. Um, two different ways to answer this. Number one, uh, let's go to the rep ranges and come back to physiology. So if you look at say the classic eight to 10 or eight to 12 reps per set thing. Okay, great. Um, now you could criticize that and say, hey, for years we said eight to 12 was the optimum range. But I never, ever, ever taught people that you have to do eight to 12. In fact, I was very diligent early in my career saying these are just rough estimates. You certainly think seven reps is not going to get dried virtually, but eight will. Yeah. 13 doesn't work. Of course it does. You think 15 doesn't work? You think six doesn't? Of course they do. You have to think of this as like a sliding spectrum where eight to 12 means most likely to work pretty well for most people as a starting place, Kate. So I always taught that because it didn't make any sense to me to say, okay, seven doesn't, 13 doesn't, what's magical about 12, nothing. Okay, and then research started coming out saying, hey, sets of maybe even four or five is equally effective. And then maybe even sets of 20 or 30 is equally effective. Now we have this rep range of like three to 35 that seems to be equal and basically in the hypertrophy. So now people are swinging all the way back being like, okay, any rep range, they're all equal. But that's not necessarily the case either. For example, I asked my classes two nights ago. I said, all right, all of you have done hypertrophy training. Yeah. Okay. How many of you have done eight to 12 rep range or whatever this is saying? Like all their hands go up. I'm like, how many of you have ever done sets of four or five with, with when the intent was to maximize hypertrophy, not during like a strain phase? And like two or three hands go up. So how many of you have done like sets of 25 or 30? Again, not for muscular endurance or cardio, like for when you're trying to maximize growth and like a couple of hands go up. And I'm like, great. And so those of you that have done sets of four for maximizing hypertrophy, you know, what were your reactions? Like, well, okay, it worked fine, but it's just so hard to lift that heavy that often. Okay, great. Those of you that did sets of 30. Yeah, it's great, but it's just so hard to lift that many reps and to not just like, you know, you quit 22, you quit 35, but it's so hard to actually get to failure there, you know, or whatever, how close, like, you know, failure minus two. Well, geez, after 30 reps, like, that number, it's just hard to actually land minus two or whatever you're looking for. And so I said, yeah, so 
you've done the light thing, you've done the heavy thing, you've done the middle. Which one seems to be about the best? They're like, honestly, the eight to 12. Because it's enough reps, but it's not too many. It's enough weight, but it's not too much. So like we have to think through this. Like I know the science says you'll get equal results, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's eight to 12 is not the best thing because it honestly generally is the best place because of those reasons. So the practical thing um, takes over in the fact that like, there's a reason why we were at eight to 12 for all these decades. It's because it is the place that's generally going to work best for most people most of the time with all factors considered. And the second part is, is the actual physiology um, of, of kind of what's happening here. So you have to look at, uh, sorry, I might throw here. So with, with the physiology piece, um, you, ha you have a lot of avenues and, and ways to take advantage of hypertrophy. And so one could say, okay, I'm trying to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to keep the rep ranges the same between all my muscle groups because, uh, they're fairly homogeneous in terms of their fiber type. Well, that's true. And it's also deadly, not true. For example, if you look at the quadricep, the, the vastus lateral, so the outside leg muscle in general, people are around 50, 50 in terms of percent fast twitch versus percent slow twitch. The gastroc, so the, like the, if you lift your toe up in the air and you point it to the sky and like that inside muscle that pops up is your gastroc. If you point your toe away from you, that like kind of behind your ankle, halfway through your shank muscles, your soleus. Well, the gastroc is generally, you know, 70 or 80% fast twitch and the soleus is the opposite. So muscles are not 50-50 and they're not even close. The hamstrings are almost entirely fast twitch. The glutes are not. Uh, the lats different than the spinal erectors, the deltoids, the biceps, and the triceps, all very, very different. So with, across muscle groups, they are not mostly 50-50, and it's not even close. The, the quad tends to be, but the other muscle groups are not. The pec major is definitely not. The deltoids, as I mentioned, absolutely not 50-50. Again, making it worse is that's not true across people. And so if we just look at, say, the soleus, um, pretty much most people are going to be mostly slow there, but some people might be like 95% slow. Some people might be like 65% slow. The, the gastroc is almost always going to be faster than the soleus from person to person. But if you look at the quad and I've, again, I've done this dozens, hundreds of times now, that, that VL, even though it's generally 50, 50, that's not true because that's almost always assuming you're untrained. And the reason you're 50, 50 is because you have so many of these hybrids. When you take people who are highly trained or even reasonably trained, it's not 50-50, hardly ever. Um, yeah, we've seen with our weightlifting study, we, we biopsied uh, national Olympic world and Olympic weightlifters. And we saw very, very clearly 80, 85% fast twitch in the quad. Um, group average was 70 plus some percent fast twitch there. Um, we've done studies on just like, kind of like college people who work at the rec center kind of thing. And, and even those folks are not 50-50 fast twitch there almost always hedged towards more fast twitch than slow twitch. We've done stuff on endurance runners in their opposite direction. And so uh, I, I, it's not actually true that people are 50-50 in almost any muscle and it's not true across people and it's not true across muscles. So set, having said all that, uh, I think there actually is pretty strong merit in thinking about uh, different training styles and approaches for different muscle groups. Now there hasn't, we haven't really gone to research there, uh, but I would imagine that if you did and put some, some money and time behind that, you would see that maybe the triceps um, are optimized at a different volume than the hamstrings. 
or a different intensity or a different rep range or a combination of those things because the fiber duct profiles, even across people, are, are very different across those muscles. So um, that all being said to the final thing is where the field eventually is going is precision, right? And so I don't want to just be able to say generally the hamstrings are faster than the quads, therefore hamstrings get this rep range and quads get this rep range. Um, what we want to be able to do is what do you have? And precision nutrition, precision um, training, precision medicine is this is the future, right? And so we're going to be able to predict and then train accordingly. And this is some of the AI stuff we're working on now is to do that. Um, so, so there's no more questions and guessing because we have a computing power to do it. It's, it's just a matter of a little bit of funding and laziness for why folks aren't doing it. So that's, that's really where we're going to get um, to move next. If you even can, how does the average person who doesn't have access to extracting their muscle using a muscle biopsy like how does somebody like me go okay let me look at my training and and i know what i do i've been training for a decade so i actually if i think about it i do tend to have eight or less reps when i hit hamstrings for the most part because i just feel better doing that i have no problem doing high reps on my quads for example and that would maybe give me some info but how do people really determine this and how are you guys planning on if, if you have any like serious thoughts of like using technology to decide like hey here's a tool people can use to really customize their training to be able to to optimize this? Yeah. Um, yes, we, like we, we have that. Um, there's only so much I can divulge on all those things, but that's, yes, that, that's a real thing that's, that's already um, in the works there. How real people can use it, um, for the most part, people can figure out if they're fast with their slow catch. It, it, it's pretty easy. Uh, if you're really so if you're in the middle it may be a little bit more difficult at this point the best thing is to just pay attention to training notes so taking notes and, and, and checking things right so uh, if you end up having in fact every for the heart throughout my entire career before computers and stuff came online really when you look at people who are serious powerlifters or bodybuilders or weightlifters whatever they were whatever sport they were in they have training logs and they will routinely go back to what i do in 97 what i do in 98 what was i doing in 2001 and then you can start to see trends over like, geez, I just respond well to this block. I respond well to this type of training. This is where I had the best growth. Um, that's going to be by far your best way to go about it. If you don't have a computing power, um, you can do things like there are some rough surrogates of, okay, do a 80% uh, squat and as many reps as you can. Um, and that number will give you an indication if you're fast with your slow twitch. Obviously, the more reps you do, the more slow twitch. If you can only do you know, five reps at 80%. You're probably not a soldier, you know, guy or gal, but you have to make sure that you're trained. So if you're just like out of shape, like really you're just out of shape, that <laughs> doesn't really predict your fiber that you're just, you know, unfit. Um, so that is one model you can do. You can do a, what's called a Thorstenson test. So it's a leg extension test of 50 reps, um, but you need a biodex for that. So most people don't have those. So in general, I would say, I, you know, if you can't like outwardly predict, like, geez, I'm really a fast switch person or not, then, uh, you can just take training logs. And after that, I wouldn't really worry about it. It's, I guess, the biggest point because you just have to see what response that you respond best with. I think uh, it, it, not everybody can do this, but I know I had a training partner for years who was very, very fast, which dominant, and you could just tell, and I was the polar opposite. So depending on what block we were on, one of us would be excelling more than the other. And that kind of gave us insight of like, yeah. what we work best with, you know, but. Yeah, I mean, you could, there's lots of things like, um, I mean, these are just like rough estimates, but are you a grinder or not? In other words, are you a type of person who can do a 12 second pull up and still get to the top? 
Or are you like, hey, if I don't get it up in the first two seconds, the bar is not going. That's going to tell you, like, if you can grind through a deadlift and do it, you know, five seconds to do a, a max up or deadlift, um, then you may be more slow to it. If it's just like, hey, it doesn't move or get stuck in there. And you see people like this, like you've seen, if you've ever been to a powerlifting meter, and like you see people and you're like, oh man, their opener was at 500 and deadlift, and it's like they pulled it up like it was 25 pounds. And you're like, geez, and they go to 520. And it just, the bar won't move. Like, what the hell? Like, how did that not move at all? Like, you were at 90% speed and then you just couldn't move the bar? That's a lot of times it's because like either they go really, really fast or like it's zero. Um, such as people will gradually slow down as the weight goes gradually up. So those are kind of ways that you can identify um, how sore you get as often is, is again another very simplistic indicator. So faster people tend to get much more sore for longer. Uh, recovery is much faster than slow twitch fibers. Um, and then last one I was gonna say was uh I'll taper. You know, taper is another way we play with this too. Like people that you, know, you take a day and a half off and you feel great. Uh, other folks you need two weeks. Um, if you take a day and a half off, you're probably a slow twitch person. Uh, if it takes you a long, you know, like four or five, six day taper where you're really inactive, that tends to work better for faster people. So th those are all kinds of ways to help identify. Those are actually really helpful for people listening. I, I, I have a, I would love to get your thoughts on, uh, Mike Isretel made this uh, a pretty popular thing in the hypertrophy space. Um, and he's been on a couple of times and talked about it. And what you're discussing is basically like, we all kind of have something we're going to be better at and we can utilize for muscle growth. Right. And he has this resensitization concept that he's put out. And I don't know if there's much research on it, but this idea of like, after so many blocks, like you need to do a strength phase, not necessarily to build strength, uh, which from a periodization standpoint, that would make the most sense to me, but more so to resensitize your muscles to the hypertrophy stimulus that you were giving it to before. Do you agree with this? Do you find, not to like start a debate on it, but just curious of your thoughts on this idea and if it matches up with what, what you've done inside of periodization and muscle fiber typing and all that? Yeah, well, I have yet to see Mike Isertel get anything correct in any aspect. Um, so, you know, we can start there. As a giant walking ball of wrong. Short ball of wrong. Not like a giant, like wide. No, I'm just, of course, completely kidding. Uh, no, he, he, everything... The most part he does is fantastic. Um, conceptually, he and I are in agreement that uh, I, I do think it is very important. In fact, this is when I brought up the story of my students in class the other night. The next thing I mentioned was, okay, so how many of you, you know, have deviated from that eight to twelve range? Not very often, right? So it's probably pretty good if you've been doing eight to twelve for three years, you know, roughly. Um, and you're not making any more gains, like I don't know how much more information you need to think that you probably need to change the programming. Like it's, this is what happens, right? And so I, I fully agree. Now, could we give you some back-assed explanations of the physiology? Yeah, but we're guessing. Mike is guessing, I'd be guessing too. So I'm, I don't you know, fault him for, for calling it resensitization. That's a way of saying like, we don't know what's going on, but it, it works and it makes intuitive sense that you should probably do it. So is it the fact that you're activating different motor pathways and therefore maybe different motor fiber or muscle fibers possible. I mean, we've seen from our work that there is a pretty stark desensitization in the cell wall. So the way that you activate muscle growth is remember the basic physiology. So you've got a muscle cell inside that muscle cell is a nucleus and that's what holds your genes and genes tell proteins to replicate. So if the only way that you have an external stimulus like exercise 
activate something in the nucleus is you have to have this whole signaling cascade. So on the wall of the cell, there are receptors. And let's say that receptor is a beta adrenergic receptor, which is something that would be activated by testosterone. And so testosterone hits that, that receptor. That receptor gets turned on inside the muscle cell now it activates what we call a signaling protein this protein activates another protein and there's this whole cascade until it, this last protein tells the nucleus we need to grow some tissue and then you go through the whole cascade of physiological protein synthesis well those beta adrenergic receptors are very responsive to training and they do become desensitized so we've seen this actually within the, the two-week training study i was talking about earlier um, i've seen this to some of our work when we've compared people across training domains so people that are inactive people that are, are sedentary, sorry, people that are just basically active, recreationally trained, um, kind of competitively trained, and very highly trained. We see a, a pretty clear arc in terms of changing sensitization of some of those important signaling path, uh, pathways. So the total amount of those protein goes down, in other words, so that's, or the total amount of those receptors go down, or the amount of those receptors that are active or those signaling proteins that are activated go down. So AMPK and mTOR and a lot of the stuff in the anabolic signaling cascade, or the receptors on the cell wall. And so, yeah, um, Mike's not totally wrong there when he's saying there's probably a loss of sensitization. Where specifically it's at? We don't know. Is it a hormonal thing? Is it a motor control thing? Is it a cell signaling thing? I don't know. Um, so when you account for activation, does it go away? I'm not really sure there. So the physiology is quite mucky at this point, but uh, conceptually, I think Mike's dead on. And, and actually, I've been recommending the same thing for a long time is uh, probably, I, I would actually even say the opposite too. Like not only do you need to have a strength block, but then you probably need to go have a muscular endurance block where you go really high rep range. So I mean, look at the power lifters. Uh, you'll see folks you know, historically do sets of 100, you know, just like bent rows for 50, for 80, things like that. And just really, really drive muscular endurance for four to five beats. And then come back and feel a lot stronger. It's just like the, the opposite of what should ever happen, especially for somebody who's trained, right? But um, so I, I think that, yeah, you should have some differences. Uh, I think you should also probably play, if we're on this topic, with um, movement types, movement tempos, movement uh, variations. So move your foot position, move your hand position, change your depth a little bit, change the cadence. Um, all these things probably give you enough of a slightly different stimulus uh, that maybe helps you kind of continue to progress if you're plateauing um, or not. So we just don't know enough about all the physiological pieces yet to explain it, but I think it is fairly true that um, serum variation is a good thing. Uh, now, variation is not randomization, so we just don't go to the gym and just do random shit. Uh, but we also can't do the same program six week cycle on repeat for five years and wonder why, you know, you're not getting better. I love that variation isn't randomization. That's that's a good way of looking at it. Cause I think that's a hard battle for people, um, especially non-advanced athletes who just kind of program hop or see something shiny and want to jump on it, you know, so. Yeah, so the key difference that I'll say there, the difference between randomization and variation is planning. Yeah. So, you know, if you're randomization, that means like you're going to the gym and what am I doing? Well, what machine is open right now? All right, that's a random. That, that's a land, that's a recipe for no progress. Guaranteed, right? Uh, variation though is thoughtful. Uh, so we're doing this variation for these reasons and it's planned. Uh, this is this is programming versus working out, right? This is a personal trainer putting together workout five minutes before, or as you're on the treadmill warming up, versus somebody who's been thinking about the previous six weeks and thinking about the next six weeks, whatever the case might be. Yeah, this is somebody charging you eighty nine dollars for a workout, somebody charging you six hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. Like that's what you get. Yeah.
Yeah. I could go so many different ways of this. We're running up on an hour, so I want to respect your time because I know you're a busy guy. But um, this has been great, man. I, I have probably 10 more questions on muscle fibers, a bunch on concurrent training. There's so many routes that we could take with this. So, um, you're oh, geez, we never even got, we never even got like past the first area, did we? No. And that's, and, and I should know better, uh, to write. One I talk a lot. So there you go. But, uh, but no, man, it's been, it's been great. You've been, uh, super helpful. And I think we articulate it in a way that the people listening are really going to get a lot of that. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time a ton. Um, can you let everybody know where they can find your stuff? You put out a lot of good long form content on your website, your YouTube, um, any future projects you have going on or anything like that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Instagram and Twitter, um, are the best places, um, to get stuff. If you like the direct links, Twitter's the, the place. Um, and then YouTube, basically I put my, all my graduate courses in sports nutrition, muscle physiology, strength conditioning, et cetera. They're all up on YouTube for free in five, 25 and 55 minute things. And I'm going to make a slight change to, especially the 25 and 55 minute versions here soon, where I'm going to, uh, timestamp them. So what I typically do at the very beginning is I give an outline, like we're going to cover these 15 things and answer these 15 questions or whatever. I'm going to have, try to have them timestamp so you can go click it like, hey, minute 7 to 11 is when we cover, you know, optimal protein for whatever, like, and you can go click on that. Um, so that, that'll happen uh, pretty soon. Those are the places to go. Um, I just did, I think we, we sort of referring to this, but I did a, a three-part series on everything we've learned in the last you know, two or three years scientifically in muscle hypertrophy. So part one is kind of the physiology. Part two is the, the molecular side. And part three is all practical applications. So it covers, you know, eccentric versus concentric. It covers, you know, flexing in between. It covers listening to music while you work out. It covers like all that you know, reps, how many volume, um, range of motion, all that type of stuff is, is covered in the practical one. So you can go to that. And I, I think I summarized it all in one 20-minute video. So that's up the... Um, but I'm going to transition here shortly. In the next like 70 videos I'm going to make are all about um, micronutrients, minerals, phytochemicals, and vitamins. Um, so I got a, hours and hours coming out in that general area pretty soon. So there's the one before that was a big series on hydration. So all things how to chest strong hydration, how to measure, figure it out, and optimize it for your own self and all that. So those are all up and available for you. Perfect. And this just Dr. Andy Galpin on all those. Yeah, I think just. I'm not sure what the YouTube one is. I think it's just Andy Galpin. Okay. Uh, but if you search that stuff, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Five minute fizz, fizz, it should be pretty easy to figure I'll out. I'll link it all in the show notes. And in in there, I mean, he's not joking when he puts like college level stuff like in an entire presentation on YouTube. There is a ton of content there. So definitely go check that out. I'll link all that in the show notes of this podcast so you guys can click and go watch. Um man. Andy. Yeah, the, the goal is, and I'm pretty pretty close. Uh you know, I want people to be able to get a four-year degree in exercise physiology on my YouTube for free. It's, it's getting fairly close. So yeah. it's actually pretty crazy. Well, the first time I watched one of your lectures, I was actually pretty shocked that it was on YouTube. So um, thank you for doing that, man, personally. But uh, go check that out, guys. It's great. Dude, thank you so much for your time. It's been a blast. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Nice to connect with you.